Tesla is spying on you, even when you're naked. Mulvad and Tor have teamed up to make a new browser. Google will be requiring apps to allow you to delete your data. ICE and the IRS are doing some less than ideal things. What else is new? And more exciting or not so exciting as this podcast goes, things happen this week. So buckle in, it's going to be a good week or not so good week as we all like to say back here. So welcome to Surveillance Sport 129, where we're dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news in the last week. I am Henry from TechLore. I am Nathan from The New Oil. And as always, it's the same thing every week. Our main ways that you can support us are through Patreon. That's our main way because we get to see the dedicated support each week. We can give you guys some perks in exchange for that. Those perks include things like joining our Q&A, which you'll see later in this video that come from our patrons directly. And you also get none of these sponsor segments. You get a VIP version with more of our personal takes on things, as well as this whole promo segment completely stripped clean. If you don't like Patreon, we also have LibraPay, which is another recurring method of supporting us with no perks. And on top of that, we also directly support Monero. So if you just want to support us uh, via Monero, which is the most private way of supporting us, that is an option. And we see all those contributions. I'm always refreshing our wallet each week to seeing the contributions, and we see them pretty much every week. So thank you, everyone, for supporting us via Monero. Heading into the highlight story for the week, so we were going to do the Mulvad story, but both myself and Nate covered it on our own respective channels, and we'll talk about that story soon, so we decided to make Tesla the highlight story. So Tesla workers have shared sensitive images recorded by customer cars. This happened between 2019 and 2022, where groups of Tesla employees privately shared via an internal messaging system, sometimes highly invasive videos and images recorded by customers' car cameras. The shared videos included sensitive situations, like a man approaching his vehicle naked, another man hitting a child on a bike pretty fast, apparently, mundane images like dogs and funny road signs, and even the inside of Elon Musk's own garage. Tesla states in its own consumer privacy notice that its camera recordings remain anonymous and are not linked to you or your vehicle. They also say this for like location data, like we are collecting location data about your vehicle, but it is anonymized as if you can anonymize location data. But seven former employees told Reuters that the company program they used at work could show the location of recordings. Oh, wow, I got ahead of myself, which potentially could reveal where Tesla owner lived. Again, you can't really make location data anonymized. There's really way too much to share here. We're just highlighting some of the more relevant and disturbing portions. Definitely a worthy full read for all of you. And there's also a follow-up article relating to this one that is Tesla is now facing a class action lawsuit from an owner in California over this. And just real quick, for those of you like who aren't going to read it, and you're wondering how they knew it was Elon Musk's garage. Apparently, he bought a set piece from an old James Bond film, and that's how they figured out it was him, was they were looking at the footage, and they're just like, and this actually proves the point, actually. I I guess I will point this out. They were looking at the footage, and they're like, whoa, check this out. Somebody has this set piece. It's pretty recognizable. It's like a submersible car. That's really cool. Oh, this is Elon Musk, because we can look it up on the internet and see who owns this piece and who bought it at auction last. And so even though they say that like, oh, camera recordings remain anonymous, putting aside the location data part, let's pretend that was true. How hard is it to figure out like, oh, they're parking here, they're driving here, they're pulling into their home. It's kind of ridiculous to say that that would be anonymous. All right, with that, we'll move into data breaches. We're going to start off with an interesting one. Western Digital discloses network breach and my cloud service is down. Quoting the article, based on the evidence found so far, the company believes that the intruder had access to some of the company data. Unquote. And I just got to point out that is a rare stance. Usually the company just denies everything until they're cornered. So good on Western Digital for being honest. They are taking down some of so Western Digital, I guess, comes with this like it's basically just a cloud backup service or like a cloud service with your hard drive, kind of like a NAS, I guess. And 
unfortunately, due to this attack, they've had to take down some of those services. So some users say that they can't use their cloud, which is unfortunate. We're definitely fans of self-hosting around here if you feel comfortable doing that and have the technical capability because probably don't have to worry about stuff like this quite as much if you do that. Legal powerhouse Proskauer exposed clients' confidential M&A data. This is from an unsecure AWS server. We haven't had one of those in so long. Everyone needs to take a shot. But it left client data exposed for over six months, including clients like MLB and Morgan Stanley. Uh, There was a total of 184,000 files open to anyone who knew where to look with a browser, exposing private and privileged financial and legal documents, contracts, NDAs, financial deals, and files relating to high-profile acquisitions. They have yet to inform clients... But they are investigating and see no evidence of unauthorized access at this time. I think I might have been on autopilot and wrote AWS in the notes. I think it was actually Azure. But I feel like that's just a testament to how common those AWS leaks were. That it's just my brain was just on autopilot. Like, oh, yeah, it was AWS. But for the record, I think it was Azure. I could be wrong. Either way, it's not good. They're both pretty bad about that. It's the same result. Next comes from the Medusa Ransomware, who has claimed an attack on the Open University of Cyprus. OUC is an online university with 30 higher-level education programs and 4,200 students located in Greece. The attack took place on March 27th. Attackers are offering the data for sale or deletion for $100,000. They are also offering extensions for $10,000 a day. Sample data included personal information of students, financial details of contractors, and more. The article didn't really go into detail. That's just kind of all we know. Throne fixes security bug that exposed creators' private home addresses. So Throne was founded in 2021 as a proxy for creators and wishlists. Pretty much how this works is creators can create a wishlist and fans can buy things for their favorite creators without exchanging data between each other. The researchers said that the database was inadvertently configured to allow anyone on the internet to access the data inside, including session cookies for its Amazon accounts from the database, which can be used to break into an account without needing the password. The researchers showed TechCrunch the thousands of orders placed through Throne's Amazon account in the past few months, showing that the names and addresses of creators that Throne claimed to protect were actually exposed. Throne patched the bug and said that the unnamed privacy expert confirmed there was no data risk, but declined further comment. All right, and our last story is a quick update. It says MSI confirms breach as ransomware gang claims responsibility. So MSI, for those who don't know, they're a computer manufacturer. So the culprit behind this breach was apparently a new ransomware gang called Money Message. They claim they have stolen company source code data, including BIOS data, and is demanding $4 million. MSI is encouraging users to only download firmware from their official website just to be safe. We've seen this before with other... uh, other situations where somehow the attackers get a hold of private keys and then they sign this stuff and say, oh, it's legitimate. And it's actually malware running at a very, very privileged level. So if you're an MSI user, definitely update your firmware, but just make sure you're getting it directly from the source because you are at elevated risk right now. Now we're going to move into companies and we're going to have a couple Google stories to start things out. And the first one is Google will require that Android applications let you delete your account and data. The company has announced that Android apps on the Play Store will soon have to let you delete an account and its data both inside the app and on the web. Developers will also have to wipe data for an account when users ask to delete the account entirely. You can delete certain data, such as your uploaded content, without having to completely erase your account. The web requirement also ensures that you won't have to reinstall an app just to purge your information. The policy is taking effect in stages. Creators have until December 7th to answer questions about data deletion in their app's safety form. Store listings will start showing the changes in early 2024, and then developers can file for an extension until May 31st of next year. 
The changes come several months after Apple instituted a similar rule for App Store software. This also follows growing efforts by regulators to demand more control over services. The Federal Trade Commission, or the FTC, recently proposed rule changes requiring easy ways to cancel subscriptions and memberships. While the FTC is focused more on unwanted charges than actual privacy, the message to app makers is clear. Provide more control of accounts or face repercussions. Our next Google story says Google to prohibit personal loan apps from accessing user photos and contacts. Quoting the article, the search giant pushed an update to its personal loans policy on Wednesday for apps on Play Store to bring new restrictions prohibiting apps from accessing external storage, photos, videos, contacts, precise location, and call logs. The change will come into effect May 31st. According to recent accounts, an emerging trend has raised concerns as certain individuals who have acquired credit via mobile apps have experienced harassment by debt collectors. These recovery agents have allegedly accessed the borrower's personal contacts, informing friends and family of outstanding debts. In more extreme cases, agents have employed manipulated images to further intimidate and distress those in debt. Tragically, a number of these targeted individuals have succumbed to pressure and taken their own lives. Unquote. Apparently, these incidents are particularly well documented in India and Kenya. Quoting the article one more time, Google said it has also introduced the requirement of carrying out specific licensing documentation for apps appearing on the Play Store, offering personal loans in Pakistan to, quote, prove their ability to provide or facilitate credit, unquote. The company also made it mandatory for non-banking financial companies in the country to have only a single digital lending app on the Play Store instead of multiples. Google is working on Find My Device feature even when phone is turned off. This is coming from a tipster, so take this with a grain of salt, but there's been similar claims in other places as well, so this might actually happen. It will be called Pixel Power Off Finder, and it could roll out as early as Android 14 and could also include Pixel tags in the future. The source code includes a new hardware abstraction layer definition called hardware.google.bluetooth.powerofffinder. As per the code comments, pre-computed finger network keys will be sent to the device's Bluetooth chip, which will be kept on even when the phone is off. The functionality is very similar to iPhones, which have been doing this for a long time. The feature requires hardware support to keep the Bluetooth chip enabled at all times. At the moment, it is unclear whether current devices such as the Pixel 6 and Pixel 7 will support this required technology. Our next story is, unfortunately, kind of sad. Alcohol recovery startups Monument and Tempest shared patients' private data with advertisers. Quoting the article, Monument, which acquired Tempest in 2022, confirmed the extensive years-long leak of patients' information in a data breach notification filed with California's Attorney General last week, blaming their use of third-party tracking systems developed by ad giants including Facebook, Google, Microsoft, and Pinterest. When reached for comment, Monument CEO confirmed that more than 100,000 patients are affected. The data shared includes patient names, dates of birth, email and postal addresses, phone numbers, membership numbers associated with the company's patients' insurance providers. The data also included the person's photo, unique digital ID, which services or plan the patient is using, appointment information, and assessment and survey responses submitted by the patient, which includes detailed responses about a person's alcohol consumption and used to determine their course of treatment. Unquote. In some cases, this sharing of data goes as far back as November 2017. And the last company news is from Apple, who has fixed two zero-day exploits on both iPhone and macOS. This is just to let you all know to update. One flaw is an I.O. Surface Accelerator out of bounds right, and the other is a WebKit use after free vulnerability. We're going to move on to research, and we only have one story this week. The headline says hackers can remotely open smart garage doors across the world. And I use the term hackers because this comes from security researchers. Quoting the article, a security researcher found a series of vulnerabilities with the Nex, N-E-X-X, brand of smart garage openers. He says he could remotely find garages to target and then open them across the internet, unquote. 
just to be clear, this is literally remote. Like this guy can look up. And of course the article goes into detail about how he can do it, but this guy can, uh, literally just like find devices on the internet and be like, cool, your garage door is open now. Unfortunately, next has refused to issue a fix and is actually actively ignoring any attempts to report this fix. I believe it was the security researcher, but it may have been one of the reporters contacted them like two or three times, never heard back and then contacted them one more time about a completely unrelated issue. And when they wrote back like, Hey, this is tech support. We're happy to help you. And he's like, Oh, so you do have a tech support team. Can you please acknowledge all the reports I've submitted? And then of course they stopped replying. And it's also worth noting that the vulnerability that the researcher found in theory could also affect other next products. He didn't really have a way to test them. But in theory, they could affect like alarms, smart plugs. So it's really feasible that if somebody has several Next products in their home, they could use this to like turn off the home alarm, open the garage door, go inside. There's all kinds of issues with this. And once again, we see a company that just doesn't care, doesn't care about your privacy or security at all. Just give them your money. All right, politics. ICE is grabbing data from schools and abortion clinics. 1,509 custom summonses. Apparently, those summonses are to be used only in criminal investigations about illegal imports or unpaid custom duties. From 2016 to 2022, ICE has issued over 170,000 of these, about 70 per day by average, mostly to telecoms, tech firms, money transfer services, airlines, and utility companies, but also to more concerning organizations like a youth soccer league in Texas, an abortion provider in Illinois, an elementary school in Georgia, an unnamed major state university, and a religious organization that provides refugee support. Oh, I, I said and too early. And two news organizations to reveal more information about sources. This also has no judicial oversight. A former DHS agent expressed concern about requesting data from the abortion clinic, and unnamed ICE agents noted that ICE investigations can sometimes include things like CSAM, and therefore people shouldn't jump to conclusions. However, the real issue is the lack of transparency, and how we can't verify that, and no one is verifying that. So the number issued per year also keeps increasing, doubling since 2016, actually. Wired attempted to contact recipients to get more information. Most didn't respond, and most of the ones who did declined to comment out of fear of retaliation. Okay, our next story comes from the IRS, where it says IRS wants to buy internet mass monitoring tool. This comes from good old Team Simru, who we've talked about. They make a platform called Augury that was previously headlined in a past surveillance report. It has the ability to basically track and correlate something like I'm pulling this from memory for the record, but I want to say it was like 95% of all internet traffic globally. This actually is not Augury. That's not what the IRS wants. They want a different Simru uh, product called Recon Advanced. According to the article, Recon provides access to, quote, internet traffic telemetry, unquote. On its site, the company describes this data as the world's largest threat intelligence data ocean. That's quoting the article, and I think it's quoting their website. Team Simru says that its product can be used to trace malicious activity through a dozen or more proxies and VPNs to identify the origin of a cyber threat. Quoting the article, three sources previously told Motherboard that Team Simru works with ISPs to access NetFlow data. Team Simru then sells access to some of that data through its own products, and customers may use it for their own purposes. The news shows federal agencies continued interest in Team Seamer's data and products. The procurement records show the IRS also wants to buy subscriptions from a variety of cybersecurity companies, suggested the intended use case may be defensive in nature, unquote. On a similar note, it's not from the IRS, but an IRS-authorized 
efile.com tax return. So this is a site that's authorized by the IRS. IRS recommends it, I'm guessing, to file your taxes online. The site is efile.com, and they have a tax return software that was caught serving JavaScript malware. So security researchers state that the malicious JavaScript file existed on efile.com website for weeks. Bleeping Computer confirmed that the malicious JavaScript file, it was called popper.js, was being loaded by almost every page of efile.com, at least up until, ironically, April 1st, where it stopped. On March 17th, a Reddit thread surfaced where multiple efile.com users suspected the website was hijacked because of some Chrome warnings when visiting the website, and it showed an SSL error message that some suspected was fake and indicative of a hack. The full scope of the incident, including if the attack successfully infected any visitors and customers, remains yet to be learned, but I would have to assume it did. But either way, Bleeping Computer has approached efile.com with questions well before publishing, and it doesn't look like they've responded. And the only thing, like, we don't really know what happened here. The closest thing that we can use to try to guess is that in January 2022, the Lockbit ransomware gang claimed that it had attacked efile.com. But we haven't heard anything from efile.com, but that's just happened, like, months ago, so maybe Lockbit has something to do with it. Actually, years ago. This was January 2022. So this could be something entirely different. It could be tied to that. We don't know yet. Our next headline says, Lie Detector Firm Lobby CIA DOD on Automated Eye Scanning Tech. This comes from a company called Converis Inc., who is attempting to change federal regulations to allow lie detection technologies other than just the polygraph. So this company has found success in corporate applications and sheriff's office, like, you know, job applications, hiring processes, etc., Uh, quote-unquote, found success. That's what they say, by the way. They have now set their sights on large federal agencies that could use its eye detect technology to a host of uses, including employee clearance screenings and border security. Unlike a polygraph, a device which relies on an operator asking questions and measuring physiological responses like heart rate and perspiration, Converis's technology measures, quote-unquote, cognitive load with an algorithm that processes eye movement. Using cognitive load as a metric for lie detection relies on the assumption that it takes greater cognitive effort to invent a unique lie than to tell the truth. But the correlation between cognitive effort recorded in involuntary eye movements and lying isn't clear-cut. Converis's technology follows decades of research that has failed to identify a method that can reliably differentiate between stress and lying. In 2020, a member of Converis's own advisory board expressed skepticism about the reliability of iDetect in an interview with MIT Technology Review. They said, I find iDetect system would be really interesting, but on the other hand, I don't use it. I think the database is still relatively small, and it comes mostly from one laboratory. Until it's expanded and other people have replicated it, I'd be reluctant to use it in the field. Which doesn't even touch on the fact that, you know, all these these different technologies are depending on physiological responses, which may not account for the fact that, like, you might be nervous being questioned in the first place. So, yeah, I wanted to share this story just because I I think it's I think it's really dangerous the the level that technology is going to like this is just a polygraph but now it scans your eyes they don't even have to hook you up they could be using it without you even knowing during a job interview or anything like that and they're clearly trying to spread out and branch San Francisco police can now watch private surveillance cameras in real time. This was a vote 7-4 to four by the city's board of supervisors that approved a one-year pilot program. So it's just a pilot program, so we'll see what happens after a year. The SFPD will not have continuous access to the cameras, but will be able to tap into the network under certain conditions, such as during the investigation of crimes, including misdemeanors and property crimes. But the SFPD will also be able to access private camera footage during large-scale public events, such as protests, even if there is no suspicion that that a crime has taken place. Make no mistake, misdemeanors like vandalism or jaywalking happen on nearly every street of San Francisco on any given day, meaning that this ordinance essentially gives the SFPD the ability to put the entire city under live surveillance indefinitely. That's from the EFF. 
However, San Francisco Mayor London Breed heralded the new legislation as a necessary measure for increasing public safety in a city which has struggled with rising crime rates. This is just a friendly reminder that not a single study has actually proven that mass surveillance stops crimes or necessarily improves public safety directly just because of the technology. Our next story comes from Arkansas, where the House wants you to show ID to use social media. This is known as SB 396, and it passed with zero discussion. There were 18 yeses in the Senate, so it barely passed in the Senate, but it got an astounding 82 yeses in the House. This was sponsored by the same genius who wants ID to watch porn, and it's basically the same thing. It just spreads it out from porn websites to all social media websites. Any social media platform would be required to contract with a third-party service to verify user ages. By technical definition, WhatsApp is social media, Signal, Matrix, iMessage, so yeah. TikTok has been fined nearly $16 million by a UK watchdog over misuse of children's data. That's 12.7 million pounds for those of you on the other side of the ocean. So the British watchdog, which was investigating data breaches between May 2018 and July 2020, said that TikTok allowed as many as 1.4 million children in the UK under 13 to use the app, despite the platform's own rules prohibiting children that young from setting up accounts. They would then, of course, collect data on those users. TikTok says it has improved its sign-up system since the breaches happened by no longer allowing users to simply declare they are old enough and looking for other signs that an account is used by someone under 13. This penalty also covers other offenses like failing to properly inform users about how their data is collected, used, and shared in an easily understandable way, and failing to ensure personal data was processed lawfully, fairly, and transparently. All right, and our last political story comes from Australia and is also about TikTok. Australia has banned TikTok on government devices over security concerns. Title really says it all. The ban will come into effect, quote, as soon as possible, unquote, according to Attorney General Mark Dreyfus. There will be exemptions, but only on a case-by-case basis and with appropriate security measures in place. The article also notes that now all Five Eyes countries have banned the app from government devices. All right, and now FOSS, free and open source news. We're going to start with the one that we probably would have made the highlight if we didn't already cover it already on both Techler and the new oil, but Molvad Browser. So Molvad VPN and the official Tor project, yes, the Tor project behind the Tor Browser bundle, have teamed up to drop a new browser out of nowhere. No one really saw it coming. It's basically Tor Browser without the Tor. Instead, you use Molvad VPN. And similar to Tor, the goal is to make every user look the same. Be sure to use it with a VPN for maximum benefit, ideally Molvad, because most people using it will probably be using Molvad, but personally, I'm not going to be doing it. I'm still going to be using iVPN. That's just personal, but you guys can do what you want. The use case here for those who keep dismissing this is that some sites block Tor, some are not fit for Tor, like bank accounts, or while Tor has come a long way, sometimes Tor is simply far too slow to do anything useful. And that's not a knock on Tor. It's just a different tool for a different place. Some noteworthy changes include UBO by default, so you're actually gonna get ad blocking as well, which is really nice. WebRTC is enabled, so you can do some things online as well. And the Molvad extension, which is pretty useless if you're not a Molvad user, but has value if you are a Molvad user. The browser is free and can be used with any VPN. And if you are a Molvad user, you can also use their Leda. I don't know how to pronounce this. I haven't had to say it out loud yet. Leda, Leda. I've been saying Lita. I don't know. Lita? All right, we'll go with that. Lita search engine, which is a meta search for Google funded by Mulvet accounts. So I'm guessing this is going to be a start page that actually works with the VPN on. One thing that's really important about Mulvet that I think I didn't stress well enough in my video and that isn't really being stressed by really anyone else is that this is a real company. Mulvet is a real company that has real engineers and they're partnered with the official Tor project. 
this is going to be a good project that's going to last for years. This isn't Arkin Fox that's run by one dude on GitHub. Nothing against him. He's doing awesome work, but it's just one dude on GitHub for the most part. But even part. he, like like you pointed out in your video, even he's like, yeah, I'm probably going to throw in the towel because they did such a good job. Right. And LibreWolf fell behind on security updates at that one time because they don't have like, you know, they, they're not a comp They're not like a massive company with like a ton of engineers that are like 24 seven able to push things out. So like, this is a real browser that like can actually go against something like Firefox or brave, something you can actually recommend to your family, not just a like kind of tinker project for the privacy community, which by the way, I love those projects, but I'm not going to tell mom download LibreWolf. Oh, you're going to have to manually update your browser every month or so, by the way, or Hey, yeah, just install Arkenfox on your Firefox installation. So this is really nice for that because I can just be like, okay, hey, Brave's kind of nice. If you want something different for just like some quick searches, here's Mulvad browser. It's not as slow as Tor and you can just download Tor. Like Brave, Mulvad, Tor are now three like official supported by like really legitimate companies slash organizations that are getting consistent updates and are going to last for years. Love it. Okay, our next story is uh, quite a bit of a mystery. It says, free Google Play alternative Micro-G framed in bogus DMCA notices. So the Micro-G project, for those of you who are not aware, basically it's designed to be an open source replacement for Google Play services or Google, well, Google services in general. So if you're on a completely de-Googled phone, such as like Lineage or Calyx, for example, then you can go ahead and enable this this feature and in my experience it's kind of hit or miss but you know in theory it'll allow things that require google services like push notifications they'll work a little better it's important to note for this story micro g places zero restrictions on its use it is fully open source in the actual sense of the word you can fork it you can copy it you can do whatever you want with it apparently someone is sending dmca takedown notices to google targeting various apps uh, most notably vanced which is a youtube front end And they are saying that Google needs to remove this app from the Play Store because it, quote, uses their content, which is a significant loss for their company, unquote. And the mystery is just that nobody can figure out who is sending this. Uh, Micro-G and Vanced are both denying it. Yeah, it's just really weird. Someone is impersonating Micro-G and sending out these these fake DMCA takedown notices and um, apparently trying to get Vanced and possibly a couple other projects taken down. So, yeah, really, really weird stuff. Stable quantum-resistant tunnels in the app. So back in November, Mulvad blogged about post-quantum state VPN tunnels being an experimental feature available on all WireGuard servers. The protocol has since been stabilized, and the setting for enabling the feature is available from version 2023.3 of their desktop application. I think previously you had to go into, into the CLI to enable this, correct? I'm not sure, to be totally honest with you. I think off memory you had to do this in a CLI, so it sounds like this is now actually like in the settings. So in the app, go to settings, VPN settings, WireGuard settings, and then you can toggle quantum resistant tunnel and set the setting to on. When the VPN is connected, the app should now say quantum secure connection in green text in the main view of the app. Wow. Oh, I didn't know that either. Nate put here that he didn't know that um, Mulvad VPN on Windows doesn't auto update. And I didn't know that either. Yeah, no, because I went to go check this out and like, well, let me confirm this. And I was still running a version from like December when I bought this laptop and set it up. So I manually went and downloaded 2023.3 and updated it. And uh, yeah, once I updated, it was there just as promised. And I turned it on and saw the little green text and everything. But that um, is bizarre. Why would they not have auto update? If you're a Mulvad user on Windows, be sure to check that and make sure you're on the latest version. I will be keeping an eye on that personally. Yeah. Leave comments. I'm sure lots of people who watch us use Mulvad. So let us know if you get automatic updates. And also, yeah, um, totally. 
Just FYI, this quantum resistant thing is available on all desktop apps, but it's coming to mobile soon. And our last FOSS story comes from Linux, where Linux 6.4 is bringing M2, Apple M2 editions for 2022 MacBook Air, Pro, and Mini. I'm just going to go ahead and quote the article here. Further adding to the excitement of the upcoming Linux 6.4 merge window is the mainline kernel seeing the device tree additions for Apple's current M2 devices, including the MacBook Air, MacBook Pro, and Mac Mini systems. The upstream kernel still has more work to go around the M1, M2 support compared to the downstream state with Asahi Linux, but at least now with this DT support, we'll provide some basic level of upstream kernel support for the Apple M2. Asahi Linux lead developer Hector Martin today sent in the Apple SoC DT updates targeting the Linux 6.4 cycle for queuing into the SOC tree ahead of the merge window opening around the end of the month, unquote. If you're a a Linux on Mac enthusiast, I'm just going to go ahead and assume you know what all that meant. I personally didn't understand a lot of it, but uh, the important takeaways here is this is another step towards making Linux work better on M1 and M2 Macs. It's not totally ready yet. So if you are a Mac user, this is probably not ready for you. I've heard from several sources that Asahi Linux is the most stable version. So if you're if you're on a Mac and you're uh, wanting to use Linux, then Asahi is the way to go at the moment. But this is still a good step towards getting other distros to be more Mac friendly. And the misfits. This is the headline. My phone, my credit card, my hacker, and me. As it sounds like, this is a story from a woman about how someone stole her card and spent 10 grand while she was on vacation. The twist here is that she had her card on her the whole time. She explores how it began, how she sort of tracked them down, and the whole identity theft process. It's a really fascinating read, but we're just sharing it so you guys can share this with friends and family because it's really interesting. It's a little long, but it reads like a mystery story, and it might be a good one to share with people to kind of get them thinking about privacy and security and how it can really impact anyone and how it can have long-term impacts, not just a, my email is stuck in a data breach impacts. And our last story, there is a new form of keyless car theft that works in under two minutes. So this article really goes into a lot of detail, and it's kind of a little complicated how it works. But basically, this guy, uh, his car was stolen, and he was like, bro, what the heck? Or I think it was stolen. Maybe it was like almost stolen. But anyways, he, he started digging into this story of like, how did this happen? And it turns out thieves have figured out how to hack cars. Like, seriously, like even just low level thieves who are not hackers have figured it out. They can go buy what's called an emergency start device online. And uh, you can tell these are completely above board because they are disguised as something innocuous, like a Bluetooth speaker. The attackers can just literally hook it up to the wiring, like not even plug it in. They can literally pull like uh, in, in his particular model of car, the guy who wrote this article, they can like pull away the uh, the headlight and that gives them access to the necessary physical wires to like tie into the device. From there, it just tricks the car's computer into thinking the car has been started. They fire it up and drive away. That is something to be aware of and is pretty, pretty wild. It's an interesting read. And now the Q&A. Again, these come from our patrons. We love our patrons and we answer your questions. So if you join our Patreon, you can go ahead and ask us a question. We only got two this week. So just to kind of keep you all in the loop, we tried the shorts out last week and we overall liked it. Seems like most of you liked it as well. So we're going to keep doing that. But we only had two questions this week. So we're going to answer those two right now in the surveillance report. And next week, if we have more than two or maybe more than three, depending on what it looks like, we might do more shorts then. So kind of on a case-by-case basis until we get more questions. First question is from Skolt. Companies that send statements out always say on their websites that an e-statement is more secure. Is it actually more secure, or are they just trying to save money? 
I currently have my own domain with compartmentalized emails to limit my attack surface, something like Amazon at email.net. So something like you would do with simple login or an aliasing service. Or I guess you could do like a catch-all or something like that, but it's not as comprehensive as something like an alias service. I think it really depends. You know, this is like saying like, am I more secure using this phone or this phone? At least this is my perspective on the issue. I don't find a mail to be very secure, especially when these companies aren't going to be probably using the best practices with mail. They're not going to be like wrapping things to keep them secure. If they mail you a check, they're probably not going to pay for the extra postage to put it inside, not a see-through envelope or something like that. I know this is an e-statement, so it's not a check or anything, but I think the point still stands that, yes, I don't think that mail is very secure. So in a way, I think that it's just, you're less likely to be impacted by an attack via email. It's just my guess. If they send you a statement, it's very unlikely that someone is going to get access to your email directly and then read through things, unless you're being individually targeted for something. Whereas with mail, it's not uncommon to hear about mail just not delivering, or it turns out there was someone at the post office who was going through people's mail. And, you know, with statements, if you can just see through the letter, anyone can kind of dig through. There's lots of really clever techniques to look inside mail, and there's so many hands that get a hold of your mail. Whereas with emails, you might be trusting that person's email provider and your own email provider as well. So it really depends. I don't think that there's a clear-cut answer here. Personally, I would prefer to receive e-statements. I don't like dealing with mail. I don't like it. I don't like getting it from just an efficiency perspective. I don't feel safe with mail. And I would actually prefer an e-statement over email, over mail, personally. Ideally, you'd be using something that's properly secure digitally, like Signal or anything with real proper end-to-end encryption. Obviously, these companies aren't going to be using some like pseudo end-to-end encryption, kind of like what ProtonMail or Tutanota offers via some web client. There's more control too, because it's harder and more expensive to get like a dedicated mailbox that's not tied to you versus it's really easy to generate an alias for just Amazon. Even if you buy a mailbox, you're probably not going to get a mailbox for every service that you use. Okay, and our second question comes from M. This is concerning hardware keys like YubiKeys. It says, do you use or recommend Firefox anonymized interactions between hardware security keys and websites like Google? I've seen a pop-up when registering one which points to this explanation and offers to anonymize. It seems as if it would only help if I had multiple accounts with the same company, but I also don't see any disadvantages. And then there's a link here to a uh, Mozilla support article. I believe what you're referring to is, and I've noticed this too, sometimes when you go to register a new YubiKey with a website, it's very rare. Rare, but some websites will ask for additional information about the device. And I have also noticed that uh, I, I think it's Brave will not offer to anonymize it, but it will warn you like, hey, they're asking for additional information. This could potentially be concerning for privacy. Are you sure you want to do this? If you're on a browser like Firefox that offers to anonymize those interactions, then personally, I would say go for it. Like you said, I I don't see any disadvantages here. I don't really have a lot to add to that. I feel like it's a pretty straightforward answer. If you have the opportunity to do that, definitely do it. To be totally honest with you, I'm not entirely sure what information these websites are asking about those keys and how much of a risk they would pose. Because you're right. I don't think websites are like randomly checking to see if your YubiKey is plugged in on other websites and tying them together necessarily. So you might be right that maybe it only affects multiple accounts. But I mean, the part I can say for sure is I I agree with you. I don't think there's any disadvantage there. Um, someone feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. But if the option exists, I would just err on the side of caution and accept it. 
As someone who's never attempted to use my YubiKey inside of Firefox, I didn't even know this was a thing, which is why I was so confused about the question. Honestly, I didn't know it was either, but I, I knew what they were talking about just because I've seen, like I said, I've seen Brave pop that up and be like, hey, you're about to use, you know, it's it's going to ask for some extra information. And I'm just like, well, I'm not going to not use a YubiKey. So, but now that I know about that, I might, uh, I might start whenever I get that little pop up, I might be like, oh, let me go do this in Firefox instead. If any of you watching this surveillance report have any questions, it can be privacy or security related, it can be personal, it can be about the podcast, it can be a personal question that you have for us, join our Patreon. You can ask us really anything you want as long as it's, you know, appropriate and something that, you know, we would actually put on these podcasts. So feel free to join our Patreon down below. It's a great way of supporting us and it keeps us going. We publish all these for free and we're currently sponsor free as well. So you can really support what we're doing back here and we're trying to give you guys some perks, uh, in exchange for that. So definitely join our Patreon down below. And that is it for the week. Tesla is spying on you naked. Mulvad and Tor have teamed up to make this new browser. Google will be requiring apps to allow you to delete your data. ICE and the IRS are doing some less than ideal things and some more things happened this week. It was kind of a short yet eventful week. Again, I already mentioned Patreon a lot, so you all know the spiel. There's also LibrePay as well if you want a recurring method of contributing to what we were doing back here, but without any perks because LibrePay doesn't allow you to use perks. And on top of that, we also have Monero. If you just want a one-off way to support us very privately, we do see the transactions, but we don't know who you are. And as a very, 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 very side note, we opened up YouTube memberships. Um, we will prioritize comments in our videos if we see anyone who's a member. The only reason we included memberships is just to include an extra way of you guys supporting us. We're not really expecting many of you to even sign up through there. And frankly, it's easier for us anyway if you go through Patreon, Liberpay, or Monero. But it's an extra option your way if any of you, for whatever reason, are on YouTube and you only want to support us through YouTube. That is now an option directly through YouTube. And the last thing, thank you for listening to the surveillance report. We want to ask you to also share the podcast around. Privacy isn't the most sexy thing in the world nowadays, but you can make it sexy to the people around you by tailoring some of the stories to them. If you have someone who you think a story applies to, share the story with them and maybe share a timestamp from the podcast to get people more interested in privacy around you. Give us a rating if you're listening from a platform that allows that. Um, and we will see you all next week for Surveillance Report 130.